0: Good morning again Hill family, it's good to see everyone this morning, how are we doing? Good, my name's Pastor Jimmy, if you have a Bible please open it to Exodus uh, chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20 is where we will be today. Yes, and the kids ministry can now exit with Mr. Nick and the kids teachers. In, the, in a book, the author tells a, a story of a preacher who made the mistake on a, on a Saturday afternoon of telling two boys, uh, showing them in his Bible, the pastor turned his back, the boys glued the pages of his Bible together. And the next morning, the preacher read at the bottom of, of one page, he read, I quote, and Noah, when he was 120." years old, took upon 300 cubits long, 50, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high, built up gopher wood and pitch within and without. Puzzled, he paused, he read it again. Then he paused a second time. Finally, I've read the Bible through many times throughout my life, and it's the first time I've ever read this passage before. Yet, I believe uh, that the Bible is true. From cover to cover, so I accept it as truth that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The book of Exodus, in one of those places in our Bibles where the pages are probably still a bit stuck together. Our sermon text will be addressing Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, which contains three chapters of law code. Probably Not a portion of Scripture you meditate on much. Probably not a a place you go to find a theme verse for your Christmas cards each year. But a very important section as we're working our way through this story of redemption of the people of Israel. As we saw last week, God is forming Israel into a special people for His own glory. Which requires that they live in a specific way in the world. God gave the Ten Commandments as an expression of His his holy and righteous character, but also revealing the manner in which Israel was to live as His people. Now, we must not forget, as Paul made reference to last week, that Israel's role in redemption was entirely passive. God bore Israel on His wings, and He brought grace as we are. So the law was not a means of redemption. The redeemed were to live... In light of their redemption. And the life of the redeemed is a call to live together as the people of God, in God's world, for God's glory. So, for Israel to live as God's treasured possession, they needed guidelines, as we do. You've ever experienced the joy of sharing a room with someone or being a roommate? Uh, You know the importance, and uh, Israel's call, like our call, was to live together in such a way that the glory of Yahweh's great name would be known in all the earth. So here's my main idea this morning, and I'm going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it, that as God's redeemed people, He calls us to live lives together that evidence our redemption and point to the necessity of our Saviour. As God's redeemed people, God calls us to live lives together that evidence our redemption and lives that point to the necessity of our Savior. With such a large section of Scripture, I'm not going to be able to read it in one setting. Usually I do that and I pray. So we're going to take time now and pray before we we dive in. Father... We've come here, we've got Lord, apart from Your Word, we can know nothing about You. Apart from Your Word, we cannot grow in the Christian life. Apart from Your Word, through Your Spirit, we cannot today. That You would shape us and mold us by Your Spirit, through Your Word, to the glory of Your Son. That we would live as Your people in this world. That we might love You. And as an expression of our love for You and what You've done for us, that we might love one another and live in this world the advancement of your glory be with our time lord guard me as a preacher help me lord as we walk through a somewhat obscure in some places culturally distant passage of scripture help us to see the glory of our of our god and the beauty of jesus in his name we pray amen as i as i said we're going to be covering three chapters of law code or Laws that serve as application of the Ten Commandments. Now, obviously there are some interpretive challenges in this section. We're not a nation living under the law as a theocracy. We're a local church. We're a gospel people living under the, the law of the spirit of, of life, as Paul says in Romans. So wisdom is required in making application for us as New Testament believers today. In the sermon he did a good job pointing us to the fact that the first four of the Ten Commandments pertain to loving God, while the, the latter six pertain to loving one another. So while there is some cultural distance in this portion of Scripture we have to work through, these laws point us to God's people by loving God and loving one another in the world. And more than anything else, this section reveals the heart and the character of God. As we sift through all these laws, what becomes apparent is the just. And merciful God, who is compassionate, who is compassionate and worthy of our obedience and worship, and as as, as we are, we are to live in faithfulness to Him by living lives of holiness, of mercy, of integrity, of justice, cares of our life, which is actually where life exists, right? Many of us, we may, we probably all of us can write down a few mountaintop experiences, but actually the bulk of our life is found in the ordinary. Every day of life. So we also must, before we dive in, we, we we must note the difference between the Ten Commandments last week and these case laws we will be addressing this morning. Like last week, God spoke directly to the people in the Ten Commandments. This morning, Moses communicates these case laws to the people. Where the, the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God on stone, these case laws were written on parchment. We read that, we see that in chapter... 24 Verse 4. This tells us that they, they do not carry Ten Commandments or absolutes binding upon all people. These are not. So we, we must glean principles on how to live out these Ten Commandments in our context today as God's people. So our love for God, the evidence of our redemption, should be expressed in some key ways. And I wanna, the rest of our time, I want to kind of give us some headings that help us think through some of these key ways that we as God's people, as the redeemed people, are to evidence His redemption. Number one, we're to evidence God's redemption through the centrality of our proper worship. Through the centrality of our proper worship. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 22, and I'm going to read down to verse 26. And the Lord said to Moses, have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves Gods of gold, an altar you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewed stones. for if you wield your tools on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps on my altar that you... Now it's no coincidence that the first issue of concern deals with worship. It's where the Ten Commandments began. Uh, Worship is at the heart of what it means to be human. And proper worship is the foundation of proper living. And proper worship demanded that Israel not only avoid worshipping pagan gods, but that they avoid worshipping like pagans through four distinct ways I want us to look at. And the first was this. God tells them that their worship should be simple. It should be simple. God tells them to make uh, their altar out of earth and from stone that He created, not huge stones or ornate objects. Idols were... were Pagan worship was characterized by costly and ornate um, altars, really distracting attention away from God and the true heart of worship. So God tells them to build His altar out of earth, literally. God desires our... Heart. Their worship was to be aimed at Him, not their altars. So His instruction included simply fitting natural stones together upon which these sacrifices could be made to Him. Nothing in worship is to be done for show. God is just as pleased with barefoot people in mud churches gathered for worship as He is with us this morning in our building, or as He is with a mega church in our city, as long as His Son, as publicity is the principle... Because the heart is the issue of worship. But secondly, worship is to be pure. Pagan worship in this time was also very obscene. Pagan worship around them was often mixed with sexual activity and images and, and sexual images in worship. Israel's worship was to be marked by purity. In verse 26, we have this very odd verse. Get used to that this morning. Where, where we're told how steps are, are to be uh, excluded so that no one goes up on the steps and has their nakedness extended in robes. And this was a a precaution to preserve their modesty in worship. Purity is essential in worshiping God. We should make decisions in what we wear for worship, not to attract the eyeballs of others. worship is to be pure unto the Lord. Worship is also to be local. Verse 24, it says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come and bless you. We might read over this, but what's really important here is is what's being communicated that Israel will not have to return to Mount Sinai to experience Yahweh's presence as they did again in worship. Worship would happen locally amongst His people. Later we're going to see this fleshed out in the tabernacle, but even that would travel with the people. God's presence would be with them as they went, and they could worship God rightly and fully amongst them and with them as they went about. Now it's interesting, Jesus deals with this issue of with the woman at the well. Remember, she asked him upon which mountain was proper worship to take place. What did Jesus say to her? He said, ultimately, it's not a matter of worship, it's not a matter of where, it's a matter of who. Those who truly worship, they worship Christ, they do so in spirit and in truth. So, brothers and sisters, we don't need to travel to any specific location. We don't need to experience, to, to experience true worship or to experience some greater sense of this morning. Locally, in His Spirit, in accordance with the truth of who He has revealed Himself to be, true worship can be found. And this is what leads us to our last principle here, that worship is to be sacrificial. So it should and should not happen upon the altar. And all of that points to the central importance of the altar itself. And the necessity of making sacrifices for sin in proper worship. The burnt offering was an offering of atonement for sin where a perfect animal was placed upon the altar and it was consumed with fire as smoke rose up to heaven. And the peace offering, as mentioned here, celebrated and symbolized the fellowship made possible due to the sacrifice of this animal for sin. Worship of the one true, holy, and righteous God by sinners always demands sacrifice. We are sinners. For, as Hebrews 9.22 tells us, For without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Worship, as believers, is to be centered on the person and work of Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners. He is our once for all burnt offering whose body was consumed upon the cross. Peace offering. Reconciling us back to the Father. Bringing us back into fellowship with God through His sacrificial death upon the cross. He is our once for all peace offering. Now, our worship is is to be simple so that our hearts are fixed on Christ. Our worship is to be pure to honor the name of Christ. And our worship is to be local, united in the spirit of Christ and the work of Christ. So we evidence our redemption through the centrality of proper worship. But there's a second point here. We also evidence our redemption through the integrity of our service. And this brings us into chapter 21. I want to read the first six verses here. But these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. And if he comes to him, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife or her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free for the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. Now, before we wrestle through this portion of scripture, we need to be clear That what's being described here has nothing to do with the, we can only say, abominable practice of slavery from our nation's history, like in the ancient, like small family businesses with slaves or servants, which in many ways were similar to contract workers. Honestly, we have to go no farther than chapter twenty-one, verse sixteen. Put your eyes there. Said, "Both shall be put to death." We don't have to go any farther than that verse to see how the practice of man-stealing, especially through ethnic superiority, was an abomination to God. That very verse alone anathematizes the practice of chattel slavery. Furthermore, the practice here was voluntary. People hired themselves into service of others, often due to debt. They would work in exchange for housing, protection, and an honest wage. And this was always temporary, as we're going to see in our text. Now, the word buy might stumble us up a bit in verse 2, but it shouldn't. That's what my translation has here. Because it speaks really of a contractual agreement, not property. This is similar to the way we speak of pro-athletes. We just had the (laughs) fumbled again, but okay, we'll call that. But it's similar to the way we speak of pro-athletes. We say they've been bought or they're being sold by organizations. And these terms of purchase were tied to the agreement itself. And whatever this voluntary requirement included, if it was not fulfilled in six years, the servant was to be released from obligations, it says. Furthermore, if you look in Deuteronomy 15, we don't have to go there now, but you can look at it later, in verses 12 through 15, it states explicitly that when servants were released, they could not be released empty-handed. Masters could not abuse their servants. We'll see that later. And here's very important. The sanctity of the family was to be preserved. Look at verse 3 here. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. The servant couldn't be, and she bears him sons or daughters. The wife and her child shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Now, this may seem cruel at first glance. But remember, the female servant was under a voluntary contract as well that was agreed upon. It couldn't be terminated simply by getting married. The husband would either have to wait or purchase her from paying what she owed. Or there's a third option here which points out really the unique nature of servanthood here. Look at verse 5. My wife and my children, I will go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. So this, this earring symbolized the servant's covenant and a commitment to the master. The master's care was of such... That out of love, the servant committed his life to him, to service. Now, in verses 7-11, through we find further details regarding protection of female servants. She shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his sons, he shall deal with her as with a daughter." If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these, do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment or some digging. Now, arranged marriage, which is really unfathomable to us, was a commonplace in this time. It was just commonplace in the ancient world. So his father's not being cruel. He's sending her to another household as a good prospect for a son that is provided here in the law, which would have been different than every other culture in the surrounding area. First, if it didn't work out, the family could ransom her. She could not be sold to foreigners, it says here. Second, the father is to deal with her as he would his own daughter, the text says, until she is married. And then if the engagement is broken, the man is obligated to provide for her. And if not, she is free to leave. So while cultural distance... uh, Makes it a law called men in this culture, unlike others, to defend, to care for, and to treat women justly and rightly. Integrity was the defining service, was the define service in Israelite society. And the reason for this was simple. God had just redeemed them from a life of unjust slavery in Egypt, right? Their conduct amongst themselves was to point to the justice and integrity of the God who had redeemed them. They had been set free to lovingly serve another. And this is, in fact, really a portrait of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Paul even referenced this in his prayer. We, we, we preach through Romans 6-8 as a church. And if you remember 6-8, Paul is the portrait of the Christian life in similar terms of service as we see here. He says at the moment of conversion, Paul says we are joyfully transferred from one type of slavery to another. He says in Romans chapter 6, says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Verse 20. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So like the people of Israel, if you're a Christian this morning, you, you know what it's like to live as slaves under a cruel An oppressive master. We we were held captive by a tyrannical master. But like the people of Israel, we've been set free. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And now we live joyfully under a new master. One who is loving, just, good, and perfect in every way. And out of love for our service to Him, which is marked by integrity and love in every way, Our service is to speak of our Savior. Integrity of our service. But thirdly, we evidence our redemption through the justice of our behavior. Now from from verses 12 to 36, we have various laws dealing with specific behaviors related to injury to either people or animals. We find... the the difference between intentional and unintentional homicide in verses 12 through 14. Protection was provided for an accidental homicide through a place of refuge that could protect the community from unnecessary vengeance. But intentional premeditated murder required the life of the guilty. Whoever strikes a man, you see that there, so that he dies shall be put to death. That's the principle here. Now, many of you Some of you, maybe many of you, I don't know, maybe have a hard time with with capital punishment as spelled out in our text for other things beyond just murder. The reasoning for capital punishment shows up first in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9 following the flood where we hear, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made him in his image. So whatever you believe about the death penalty, and let me say this very clearly, there is room for debate concerning the application of the death penalty because we're in a fallen system of justice today. We have to at least, though, accept the because people bear the very image of God. And the intentional taking of life demands life, is what the Bible says. And in most cultures during this time, crimes related to possessions, stealing, looting, etc., were especially if the life came from a lower class. In the Code of Hammurabi, if one committed murder, especially to the lower class, they could simply pay a fine. There was an order of fines depending on what class you were in. So in this call for justice in terms of human life, we find God's distinction upon creation. Nothing is more valuable than human life. A distinctly biblical ideal rooted in the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Every person has been birthed with distinct, intrinsic value because every person bears God's very image. Society does not assign value. God assigns value. And this value extends to every single individual in society from the the womb to the tomb. We see this principle further elaborated in verse 18 through 20, dealing with two situations concerning concerning bodily harm. Literally, I had no idea I'd be dealing with, you're going to deal with property issues today. But it says, if two men get in a fight, and there are injuries that keep the man in bed, unable to work, he must be paid for the labor loss. And if a master strikes his servant leading to death, guess what? The master is tried as a murderer. But in verse woman. There is penalty for both the mother and the child. Both are treated as persons in our text. And then in verse 23, we find this famous lex talionis, or this law of retaliation, which Jesus actually quotes on the Sermon on the Mount. It says there in verse 23, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, again, at first glance, let's be honest, it seems a bit barbaric, Right? This ensured the wealthy and the powerful were not able to buy their way out of justice, around justice. But we should also keep in mind that this lex talionis was not applied literally. We see that in our text, right? In verses 18 to 19, he, uh, the, the call is for the wounded person to receive cost of his medical expense and the labor lost. It doesn't call him to inflict the same injury back upon him. In verses 26, 6, and 27, when permanent injuries such as loss of an eye released. It doesn't say go gouge out your master's eye. So as one author points out, this expression, eye for an eye, was an idiomatic way, meaning the penalty was to match the injury occurred. In other words, the aim was for justice to be served. No favoritism, no exceptions, justice was to be served. And this principle is really... Further fleshed out in verses 28 through 32 in regards to an ox goring or taking life. I'll let you read that one over. It's a common practice in an agrarian culture. Oxes were used just like tractors or whatever else. It was a very common practice. Now let's zoom out. How do we even think about applying this? Well, I think there is a twofold truth embedded in these laws concerning capital punishment and concerning the lex talionis. We must not miss as the people of God this morning. First, every single human being is marked with the image of God. No matter the cultural background, no matter the religious practice, no matter the sociological status, physical appearance, age, gender, etc. To be human is to possess intrinsic value and worth. Because to be human is to be marked by the image of God. Is marked by sin and in need of rescue. Look, these laws... ...of every human being, and the fact that every human being is a sinner, that laws necessitate the governing of their lives because we are sinners. And that we seek our own interest. So as we think about this as the church... We evidence our redemption by treating every person with dignity and respect. We value all human life because God values all human life. We do not get to choose whom we assign dignity to as the world does. And every single person needs the gospel. From the person selling drugs on the corner to the person struggling with drug addiction to the nice and tidy businessman in the high-rise downtown. Every single person bears the mark of God, has intrinsic value, and every single person needs the gospel of Jesus Christ because every single human being is marked by sin. The next thing we see here is this understanding of the equity of property. And I apologize for moving fast. I have to this morning. But these, In verses 21-33, we're going to take this all the way to 21-33 to 22-15 animal and property. And again, though these individual situations seems a bit distant to us culturally, the principle is clear here. Things must be made right. You're gonna, in every situation, things must be made right. Equity is the call. Not equal. Equity. It's two different things. Doing right is or the doing right to someone, or we could say it maybe this way, maybe even have this as a heading in your Bible, the law of restitution is what is, guides this section. If something is stolen, if something is done wrong, it has to be fully restored. Even oftentimes we see in the text going far beyond what actually happened, uh, the crime that, that happened. Verses 33-36 through 36 deal with irresponsible action. 5-6 through six involve cases of negligence leading to the loss of property. Verses seven through thirteen deal with giving someone property to watch over, but then you break the trust and do something with it you're not supposed to. Then in verses fourteen to fifteen, they address borrowing of property. God's people are to make things right. They're to operate in their affairs with equity. And for us as a gospel people, this call to rest the restitution is especially significant. You know through who? the wee little man, Zacchaeus, right? Who had become rich by extortion. But after encountering Jesus, remember what he he said and what he did. He said, behold, I think the verses will be here on the screen. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Not that Jesus is not saying that that salvation comes because of Zacchaeus's action, but that Zacchaeus's action evidenced that salvation has already come. You see, the gospel changes us, truly loves God by loving our neighbor. And the gospel gives us a new heart that desires to make things right with anyone we have offended or done wrong. When we truly understand that God has given us what we do not deserve in Christ, we must become quick to make things right with others. That's a worldview shift we must swallow. God has not given us what we deserve. Redeemed people evidence their redemption by seeking restoration and making things right. Now lastly, we come to this Longer but really important section here. It's our redemption through our social and religious practices. This takes us from 22.16 down to 23.19 where we'll end. Now verses 16 through 17 begin with social actions in terms of premarital sex. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to to the bride price for virgins. Now, what's, and we know that because Deuteronomy 22 makes clear that the penalty for rape is death. So this is describing a man who seduces a young woman to have sex and thereby commits the sin of violating her purity and disregarding really her worth and her value. When this happens, this man is responsible to provide for this woman, both by marrying her, unless dad says no way, and paying her father. So the consequence for premarital sex was huge here. Now these provisions through our modern lens can seem maybe to treat women like property again here. But if we actually consider them in context, they do just the opposite. They actually ensure the value of the woman in that a man is taking responsibility. And secondly, this demonstrates the essential nature of marriage in terms of sex. God values purity. And while there is definitely certain application here for ladies in terms of purity, the text primarily deals with the responsibility. Let's not forget, these laws are dealing with the very social fabric to be protectors, providers, and models of purity in society. Brothers, I'm speaking to ladies, but I'm speaking to brothers. Brothers. We live in a sex saturated culture where our sisters are sadly viewed as objects to be enjoyed rather than gifts to be stewed. Is good at producing little men. Men without chest. Men who try and enjoy the pleasures of marriage without taking any responsibility. Our culture cares nothing of modesty and purity but God does. In the church, we should have a culture of men who are protectors, who are protectors. Three through five, make something very clear to us. He says, Paul says, for this is the will of God. What? Your sanctification. That each one of you, uh, one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Brothers, let's not disconnect. Sex traffic today. The pornography industry industry today is said to make more money than our major three sports on television combined. Basketball, football, and baseball. Brothers, do not disconnect the injustice that happens to women from the click of your mouse. From the gaze of your Instagram post. From the things that you like and see. Tector's to be preservers and to be models of purity. The church should be the place where that should be found. We need men with chests today, men who stand up for our women and stand up for what's right. Now, in verse 18 through 20, we find three offenses which call for capital punishment, sorcery, bestiality, and making sacrifices to other gods. Now, this mace of grace, all three of these acts made Israel unclean, if we read the rest of, the, of our Bibles. To engage in these activities was to turn away from the one true and living God and run the risk of leading others astray. So God's warning here is rightly severe. Now, in, in, verses, in verse 21 of chapter 22 to 23 chapter 9, we have somewhat of a subset within verse 21 of chapter 22 down to 23.9. There's a subset here, and we know that because there is special treatment of the sojourner, the temporary resident, which kind of bookends this section. And this section is unique for a couple reasons. First, it singles out the most vulnerable in Israel, the sojourner, the widow, the poor, and the orphan. But secondly, this section reads like the Ten Commandments in that we find no penalties here in terms of human action for breaking these codes. It just says you shall not, you shall not, you shall not like the Ten Commandments. What we do find is verse 24. Put your eyes there. 21:24. God says directly, if you commit these, my, most likely referring to his judgment from another nation. So this section demands God's people care for the vulnerable and disadvantaged. And to not do so invites the direct action of God's judgment. As viewed as less than the Israelite. But do as you want with them. The widow and the orphan were especially vulnerable in this culture due to the fact that employment and land was most often tied to men. When the husband died, the door of injustice sadly swung wide open as it still does in most parts of the world today. God's people, however, are called to a, to particularly care for those possessing. This is important. The least social, the least relational, and the least capital, financial capital in society. The least social, relational, and financial capital in society. They were called to care for those who were likely, most likely, to be overlooked and who are to be most mistreated. And this theme continues from verse 25. His laws warning the Israelites not to treat the poor unjustly. It says if they lend lend them money, they're not to exact interest. 22-25. They must not join as a false witness with the wicked towards the poor. Something that was easy to them. And they shall not side with the crowd as to pervert justice by being partial to the poor. They shall not pervert justice to the poor or or wrongful acquit the wicked possessing power to take a bribe. Verses 6-8. Now why this subsection? And why is the, why such severity on God's part in response to this particular injustice to the most vulnerable in society? And the reality is we don't escape this by just closing the, new, the Old Testament. Because the importance of these instructions are only solidified through the rest of the Old Testament and in on into the New. In the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, even greater detail is laid out in emphasis here. But then throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, and on into the New Testament, this same prince will try to cross-reference this theme. I was overwhelmed. There are literally hundreds of verses to choose from here. All over the Bible. And sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. Proverbs twenty-two sixteen. He who oppresses the poor to increase his wealth, and he who gives gifts to the rich, both come to poverty. Ezekiel 22-29, when warning Israel, the nation of Israel, concerning their coming judgment, God says, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And again in Malachi 3.5 Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And Do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There's no other way to put it. This language is clear. This language is comprehensive throughout the Bible. Now, we as New Testament Christians, we don't live, as I said at the beginning, under a theocracy as Israel did. Certainly a different moment in redemptive history. We, we do not live under the law as Israel did, so the fleshing out of these verses in our context requires wisdom. However, the principle still rests upon us. For James tells us that religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then a fascinating verse that Paul shared with me this week as we were talking about this is in Galatians chapter 2, 9, when James, John, and Peter are giving the right hand of fellowship to the Apostle Paul following his conversion, we read these staggering words regarding their request for the very thing I was eager to do. Look, the principled application of this section cannot be overstated if we are to live as God's people in this world. In fact, we as New Testament believers should be of all people committed to living this truth out. Because we of all people understand the truth of verse 9. Put your eyes on it. Why was Israel to do this? Why were they to care about the most vulnerable? Because that was their very identity prior to God's gracious act of redemption. Look what it says You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. God demands we care for those in desperate need because He cared for us when we were in our desperate need. When we were fatherless, He adopted us in Christ. When we were widowed, He became our groom in Christ. When we were strangers and foreigners to His grace, He welcomed us and gave us to evidence redemption. Those who know such love are to extend that love they receive from God Himself. I want to take this further though. There's more language here that points it and drives it deeper. Notice the language God used in verse 23. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Then in verse 27, And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God is saying, When you cried to me, Remember when you cried to me in in Egypt? Remember when you cried out to me in the desperation of your situation? I heard, I saw, I acted with compassion, remember? So you better not allow the cries of the vulnerable amongst you to go right past your ears. Grace should extend grace. Those who are captivated by grace should walk in grace. This is the very message of the gospel. Now, if your mind right now is jumping to political questions when you hear these verses like this. Listen to me. I want to say to you, that's evidence you're reading your Bible incorrectly. Incorrectly. The correlation to the nation of Israel is not another nation at all. The correlation to Israel is not America in any sense. The correlation to the people of God is the people of God. So while there is principled application, for sure, in terms of our involvement in Western society today, the primary and direct application of this text is for us, the church, the people of God. And this raises, I know, a myriad of questions Hopefully you can talk about them in community group, because I'm not even going to act like I'm pretend to answer them all. But I think maybe we should at least consider a few questions this morning to help us apply this regarding our body, one that would make it hard or one that would make it easy for the most vulnerable to worship alongside of us. Do we live our lives together? Do we order our fellowship and our community in such a way that the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor would meaningfully be able to worship our Savior alongside of us and take part in the community that we're building here? Gospel people, people who've experienced grace, are to walk in grace. People who know what desperate state is like, we do, should extend a heart to those who are desperate among us. Now, we end with verses 15-19 through 19, addressing some requirements for religious practice tied to the Sabbath and particular festivals. The Sabbath principle is to be applied to crops, to vineyards, to orchards, and that on the seventh year they must all lay fallow for the poor to eat and the animals to graze. And weekly the Sabbath is to be practiced to allow the servants, the animals, and the foreigners, or the alien, to rest their light life. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a, Celebration of their liberation from Egypt. The Feast of Harvest was a celebration of God's provision for His people. Labor in celebration of their shared salvation in Yahweh, what He had provided for them. Now verse 19 is worth reading. If not for no other reason, then it really summarizes the difficulty of this section through this unusual command we end with. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, it's in the Old Testament. Now, I'll I'll throw my hand at it, given that it shows up in this section dealing with festival practices and worship. It's probably, I think, forbidding some sort of pagan practice tied to fertility of some sort. This practice would have somehow, they thought, helped the goats provide more, be more fertile. And the Israelites were to trust in God's provision for all things, not in these pagan practices. But in this final section, as we zoom out of law code, we, we see here, uh, this, through these specific laws, how God's great acts of redemption was both to remain the center and the foundation of Israelite society going forward. It was to be the center and the celebration of their life together. So their social interactions were to be grounded in God's redemption and their religious practice, redeemed people are to evidence God's redemption. We are to live lives together that evidence our redemption and point to the necessity of our Savior. The center and foundation of our lives together is the Gospel. We are a Gospel people. And by Gospel, we mean who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what He has accomplished for us. And this is exactly why we have been given the beautiful institution and celebration of the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, let me say it this way. If the Gospel is the center and celebration of your life, you know the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, we do invite you to partake with us this morning as the body of Christ. But I want to do something first. As we, as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, I want us to be reminded... Of our relationship that we share with the law as gospel people. The last two weeks, last week and this week, we've dealt with the law. Supper. The relationship that we share with the law as gospel people today. Because we too are called to live in covenant faithfulness to our God. So that the glory of God's great name would be known in all the earth through us. So as we think about the law, we must always be on guard against two dangers. Legalism, believing our approval, our righteousness is earned by our law keeping. You treat the sojourner really good, you're more righteous than others. You do what God requires in the law, you earn salvation. You become more righteous. No, that is a distortion of the gospel. The seconds, no law matters. I do whatever I want. I'm under grace. Both approaches are a distortion to the gospel and a misunderstanding of the law. Instead, as Christians, I want you to hear this, the law should drive us to the gospel and the gospel frees us to obey the law. It is through the gospel we become aware of our disobedience to the law. The first step in becoming a believer is to become aware that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that our disobedience, as for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But it's through the Gospel that we are freed from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13-14 goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Where it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The law no longer stands in judgment over us because of the work of Christ, as we stand in the work of Christ. But lastly, it is through the Gospel that we receive God's enabling Indwelling Holy Spirit, transforming our hearts, and enabling us to truly love God and love others to truly obey the law. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God has given out, God has poured out his love into our hearts, providing us the true motivation for obedience. God's law is no longer merely a constraint upon us, it's freeing. Or as James says, it's now the law of liberty for us. So as gospel to our great God through the work of Christ, our service is to be marked by integrity and sacrificial love for one another as modeled after Christ. Our behavior is to be marked by justice, by equity and generosity, motivated by the transforming work of the Spirit in us through Christ. And as gospel people, those who understand our vulnerable state apart from Christ, we care for the weak. We care for the vulnerable. And we center our lives. We ground our worship. We keep our celebration focused in and through the gospel. We evidence God's redemption because we have experienced God's redeeming love. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to pray. Our worship team is going to come up and lead us in our final song. But every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're coming back to saying, Jesus is the center of my life. Which means, I'm not the center of my life. Every time we sin, we say to Jesus, I'm the center of my life. So again today, we reflect. We consider our sin. We repent. We lay it before our Lord. Trust and keep us centered on His Son. Amen? Let's pray. We'll take the supper together. I'll lead us in taking it. So we're gonna you'll be you can contemplate, reflect through the song, sing to our Lord. Afterwards I'll come back up and lead us before we close. Great God in heaven, I I thank you for this time and your word. Lord, I know it was a it had to have felt like it felt for 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 those hearing it as it felt for me preaching it, a sprint in a lot of places and a roller coaster ride in some others. But Lord, I pray. That You would impress upon our heart the beauty and the glory of who You are. The sweetness of Your law that's been given to us. The beauty and the the glory of what it means to be a human being made in Your image. But the desperate state that You found us in apart from Your Son, saving work of the Gospel. But Lord, we thank You that You have redeemed us. That we are mere passive recipients' own efforts. We stand not on our own works. We know that when we think about salvation, but God help us to continue that in our sanctification. We're not earning or achieving anything. We're resting in your finished work and more and more submitting areas of our life of sin to you and asking them to rid them of them, to rid us of them, that you might fill us and wrap us in Christ, we might grow up into our head and to mature manhood into Him. But Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would make us a people who take serious our redemption and understand the need, the call, the missional call to be the people of God, to evidence our redemption in this world. Remind us afresh today that we can do none of that apart from Your today. Jesus, we love You. We thank You. In Your name we pray. Amen.